Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Well, today I'm bringing you a conversation I had with BAFTA-nominated screenwriter and author James Swallow. He joined me from London to share how he crafted a unique niche as a tie-in writer for shows like Star Trek, uh, Stargate and Discovery. And we'll take a sneak preview of his new thriller, Nomad. You'll also hear part two of the conversation I had with Joseph Olshan. He's the award-winning author of 10 novels, including Clara's Heart, which was made into a feature film starring Whoopi Goldberg. He taught creative writing at New York University, and James Olshan is now editorial director of Delphinium Books. His latest novel is Black Diamond Fall. Now, part one of our conversation aired on the live show September 29th, and you can catch that on podcast at conversationslive.net. Just go to the search box and type in Joseph Olshan or Black Diamond Fall, and uh, it will pop straight up. You can listen to it there. And you can actually meet Joseph Olshan in person while he's up here in Seattle on book tour at University Bookstore in Seattle, October 18th, 6 p.m. That's University Bookstore in Seattle on October 18th at 6 p.m. So here's part two of our conversation where we discuss what's going on in the publishing world, why he drove his latest book to market without an agent, and the big, big question, would he do it again? Now, part two of our conversation begins with Joseph Alshan describing a little bit more about uh, the story of his book, Black Diamond Fall. The jumping off point is, of course, the, the disappearance of this young man, but it turns out that his mother um, has been a docent at the Robert Frost Farm. And so when the Robert Frost Farm is vandalized, basically the day before his disappearance, his mother is called in to kind of look around and help them assess, uh, help, help them assess the damage. So as it turns out, the, the, because it's a small town, uh, I mean a small state and a small town, the, the um, detective who investigates the Robert Frost vandalism ends up being the detective who investigates this woman's son's disappearance. And so I bring the two um, events together in that way. But then, of course, there is some wonder and suspicion if somehow the people who vandalized the um, Robert Frost homestead had something to do with this young man's disappearance because of his family's connection to Robert Frost. So that's kind of, that is kind of the, the, the sort of driving force of the narrative. And, and through that, I weave uh, the story and the backstory of the relationship between the older man and the younger man who is the student who disappears, and how, because the older man cannot um, prove where he was, um, when the younger man disappears, actually comes under suspicion. Mm. The book is described as a literary mystery. So what steps it up from just being a, a mystery I love, by the way, I love these questions. Oh, good. So much, yeah. Um, And it's an excellent question. And and, and this is the difference. Um, 
the, the writing, the, the quality of the writing is very important, and, and, the, and the level, the depth of the characterization. Those are the two, um, the two um, components of, of what's called a literary novel. Um, and so a, 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 a good mystery writer may not spend time working on the language. They may just want a, la- a language that serves the plot. And a good mystery novel is, is, a, is, a, is a, um, a novel that is very plot-heavy and plot-focused. But this book is character-focused um, and, and, um, and, li- and um, writing-focused. So you have those two components that are competing with the, with the mystery element. And, um, and I think that while the book does have a um, sort of suspenseful flow and it, it moves pretty quickly, I think it's, it's, its deepest chords are those struck by the relationships between the people and also the, the, um, the presence of the natural world as a character. Um, I, I think you would agree that the actual the descriptions of Vermont in the winter that it, in and of itself it becomes a character. Right, definitely. Yes, the, uh, you definitely get that atmosphere as a character, very much so. I'm talking with Joseph Alshan, he's the author of Black Diamond Fall. So um, my, my next question, Joseph, is as an award-winning author with 10 novels under your belt, and you've been very successful, your, your very first novel, Clara's Heart, was made into a movie with Whoopi Goldberg, Neil Patrick Harris, um, do you feel that you've changed as, how do you feel you've changed as a writer since that first novel? What have you learned along the way that now you know that you wished you'd known back then? Well, um, I, I guess I, 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 one, of the things, one of the things I've learned is how sometimes you need to underplay things. Um, I think that, that first novel, although it, it, it was ambitious and um, it, there, I, I, I kind of overplayed the narrative uh, and it, I had I had um, over, almost overly dramatic events, which, by the way, when the film portrayed them, really made made them seem unbelievable. They were actually more believable in the novel because the two events I'm talking about were separated by several chapters, but in the movie they were one right after another, and it just seemed completely unbelievable. But what what that showed me was that I sort of overplayed my hand narratively. So. Since then, I've learned to, 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 to write a narrative novel, but not to, but, but to rely on the, the drama doesn't necessarily have to be so, so um, forcefully constructed that it actually can be more subtle and, and still be very, very powerful. Um, and, um, but that, that said, um, it's become, as much as I've learned, I've, I've, I've honed my craft over 10 books, each book seems to become more and more difficult to write not quite sure why that is. Maybe I don't have the same sort of exuberance and energy as I did when I started out. But, um, but I find that I struggle more with later books. Mm, I wonder how much, how much of that do you think comes from like the mental pressure that you've got to be successful? Do you put that kind of pressure on yourself? Because I would imagine with having such success on your first novel, other people certainly have expectations around that for you. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I guess you know, you, when you say to me that you're successful, of course, there's, there's a voice in my head that says, well, that's not really true. <laughs> and, and I think that I've never really sort of, I've never believed that I was incredibly successful. I always thought, I've always thought of myself as trying to get a larger uh, readership, trying to get a larger audience. I mean, there are certain no- novelists who become extremely famous um, right off the bat. And I think that that's, that is a challenge because... 
they 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 can be duped into believing that whatever they do is going to be wonderful. And you know, I I feel that that, that my entire career I've been struggling with my deficiencies um, and trying to sort of you know work with what I have. So I I have never I've never felt um, I've never felt um, accomplished enough to be worried about pressure. Mm. Believe it or believe it or not. And so, in your mind, and this doesn't mean they are deficiencies, but in your mind, what do you think your deficiencies are? I, I mean, I, I sort of I referred to it early in the, in the interview. I, I feel that my, my my landscape is limited; that I really can't write anything unless it's it's somewhat autobiographical. Right. And of course, and of course, writing the last two novels I've written have been sort of suspense, stroke mystery, stroke literary novels, and, and, and so that makes it even more difficult because. You really have to kind of uh, do a lot of work um, that, that 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 the narrative um, dictates, and that doesn't often leave a lot of room for personal autobiography. So I've been trying to find ways to inject myself into these books so I can make them live. I mean, I I feel that there are writers out there who can write about times and places. Um, where they haven't lived and yet somehow bring them to life, mm-hmm. and, and I and I and I really can't do that. So that's 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 an example of what I mean by deficiency. Okay, sounds good. So so you've said uh, a lot of your work has been um, has been what they call gay fiction. Um, I've heard you say that that market is shrinking. Um, we're looking more towards multicultural. I'm guessing that's multicultural, right? Yes. Yeah. And Publishers Weekly um, said that your new novel rides the winds of cultural change. So do you think this book, Black Diamond Fall, is different to the other work you've done? Um, yes. In, in, I mean, let me, let me just give you the reality. I was doing a book, a book reading in Middlebury the other night, um, and, uh, which is where the, the, the novel takes place. And then the bookstore owner said to me, she was very enthralled with the book, and she said, "You know, Joe, I'm not going to mar- market market this as a, as, a, as gay fiction because I just don't think it really is. I mean, that is certainly one aspect of it, but you have a whole world that you're talking about here, which has nothing to do with that. And I think marketing it as gay fiction would be selling it short. And by the way, um, quite a few of my novels are quote unquote heterosexual novels. I mean, I've explored everything um, in in in, the, in 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 my work." But yes, there are have been several novels that were, you know, in the realm of sort of get, you talked about gay relationships and love between between men. And yet, that said, um, I like to think that if I write sort of deeply and um, carefully about a relationship between two men, that it, it will be something that that will be universal and that will appeal to to all sorts of people, and that 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 they will see the sexuality of these two men as incidental, but rather. It's a love story. In this case, I don't really think there have been a lot of love stories between old, much older and much younger people. I mean, heterosexual or gay, and so that's one of the, the um, that's one of the the, the subjects that really um, drew me and excited me because I just haven't really seen a lot of novels that, that dealt with that. And and also too, uh, the the books and the stories that I've heard about relationships between older people and younger people talk about how the older person feels revivified uh, and younger by being with a younger person, but 
that's not my experience. <laughs> it makes me feel older. I don't, I don't really get that. And I, and I felt that that, that, that point has, had not, has not been articulated, and I certainly wanted to articulate it in this novel. That's actually quite funny because I was just speaking with a friend who is in a what we call a May December romance in England and and he said, God, he, she doesn't relate to anything that I know and I grew up with <laughs> because she's the younger partner in in that case and and it was making him feel really old. <laughs> well, I, I think that if anybody who feels feels old in a situation like that is is at least being realistic. You know? <laughs> Because they are, they are older, and they're just things that they can't do that they could do when they were younger. And they look at the younger person and, and say, well, this is, I could do all of this when I was younger, but there are just certain things that you can't do. Even as fit and vital as you want to keep, as you want to keep and, and I certainly consider myself a fit person, you just can't compete with somebody who's 37 or 38 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, uh, and um, so, and, and I know that from personal experience. So can we talk about publishing? Because I know you're an expert in this field and it certainly has changed a lot over the last few years and it continues to change. Um, I read that you drove the publication of this book, Black Diamond Fall, yourself. You didn't have an agent, you you just pursued it all yourself. And I'm wondering why you chose to do that and and just share some of the pitfalls and the benefits of doing that. Um, well, actually, it wasn't by choice. Um, I, I, I had a very unfortunate uh, misunderstanding um, with with my literary agent, um, and we had a very, very long uh, relationship. And so I was agentless um, and um, wasn't making, um, you know, uh, any connections with any new agents. And I, or I did have another ag- other agent for a while, and that didn't work out. So at some point, I just said, "Look, I got to do this myself." And um, I knew that I wouldn't probably not be able to get the attention of big editors in publishing because I was agentless despite the fact that I had a name and despite the fact that I run a publishing house. So I just decided to reach out to a few smaller publishers. Um, and, 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 all, and every single one of the small publishers I reached out to wanted to publish the book. And I decided to go with uh, a publisher who, like me, is a novelist but also runs a publishing company because I figured that we could probably have a lot to exchange and, and learn from one another, and, or certainly I could learn from him um, since, the, um, since he's been at it longer than I have. Um, and so that's why I did it that way. But, I, but you know, having gone through this experience, I would say uh, that, that a, a writer is much better off having an agent. And, um, and, and, I, and, I, and, and I wish that I did have an agent in, this, in the process of, of selling this book. It would have made things a lot easier for me. So, even though I'm a seasoned professional, and even though I can talk, um, you know, numbers and 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 um, publishing nuances with with the person who's publishing me, I I still think you need an agent because there are certain things that happen that you just don't want to get involved in, and the agent really needs to pick up the slack. Uh, but getting a, getting an agent this, these days is is almost as difficult as getting a publisher. I mean, agents. Agents will only take on books that they're sure they can sell, and and I've seen this happen. An agent will really admire a novel, but not know how or to whom they can sell it, and they won't take it on because it's just it just becomes too much of a process and heartbreaking for everybody involved. So a lot of really good writers are, are having trouble finding agents because what they're doing, the product they're coming, they're going out with, is not something that's easily recognized as something that that's saleable to a certain person. 
And it's also, and also agents have their contacts at different publishing houses. So, for example, uh, Agent A will sell, will, will sell um, a novel to Editor E at William Morrow and Company, and, and, and Editor E will only um, be interested in a certain kind of fiction. And there may be Editor C at William Morrow Company that Agent A doesn't know, and that the Editor C might be a better fit for, Agent, for the novel that Agent A is representing, but it won't go to um, Editor C because um, the agent doesn't have a relationship with Editor C. So that's how, I think it's a good example of how publishing has really changed. Yeah. It used to be that a really good novel that was, that was well done could be published, and now it's not the case anymore. It's, it's, it has to be exactly what someone's looking for. It has to be something that, that, that the editor can market to the marketing, the, the marketing department and the sales department. Uh, and so they have, to have, they have to be able to think of, of a strategy. So it's, it's really love of a book. We, my publishing company publishes what we love. We're, we're among the very, very few remaining publishing houses that do that. But most of the publishers out there, they have to love plus be able to sell the book to their constituents. Right, right. And you publish a very small number of books a year, as do many publishers. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. They think they just have an endless budget to publish endless number of books. Um, so that's another big change, I think, with a lot of the smaller houses, too. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's actually very, it's quite expensive. It, it costs around, production costs and everything costs around, it costs around $10,000, believe it or not, to, to publish a book in, in a quality way with, with design costs and printing costs and, and, and all sorts of costs. So it's not, it's not, an, it's not an easy undertaking. And, um, and we, we are, are, all our books are, are very high-quality um, publication, I mean, materials that we use in de- to design. I mean, we, we, sort of, we pride ourselves on that. Uh, so, so taking anyone on, of course, is, you know, is, is an investment, mm-hmm. and the advance is paid on top of, on top of the, the production costs. So it's, 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 you know, it's, not, it's, a difficult, um, it's difficult to make money in this business, really. Right, right. Now, a lot of people have uh, a day job, as they call it, uh, and write at night. Um, a lot of people do that because they find it works best. Some need the money, right? But some right. also find it works best for them because they can't handle the, the amount of solitude they'd get if they just sat and wrote all day. How does that work for you? Well, unfortunately, I, I, I work out of my house, so I don't really get the chance to interact with people the way most people would at a, at a, at a publishing house. Uh, the only thing I can say is that I, I'm in contact with people all the time, and so virtually I'm in touch with people at we're, we're very closely associated with um, with Harper Collins, and so I'm always in touch with our, our, my contacts there and the publisher through whom I work and and my authors. So I have this world of people that I'm involved with, but it's all in, in, it's all virtual. Mm. Well, but that, but that would be in comparison to sitting alone in a house and writing one book after another where you're not really in contact with anyone unless you, when you, until you, when you go out and get to get the mail. Um, so, uh, so I feel that it's, it's, it's a, a lot busier life because of, because of this publishing job, even though I don't see these people on a daily basis. Yeah, I'm the same. I don't see people I work with. They work all over the world. Uh, but I did have one project where I would just did it by myself and I was nearly going nuts by the end of 10 weeks. <laughs> So it's been such a pleasure talking with you, uh, Joseph. A final thought you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Well, I think that for me, examining my life really closely has produced my best work. And that's, 
how I operate as a, as a writer. Um, it, it's different for other people, but I think that this book that I've just published is a very personal novel, it, despite the fact that it's based on um, real events. It's, it, it goes to the core of me, and, and I wrote out of the deep, deepest part of myself in order to complete it. Well, we certainly appreciate you being with us today. The book is called Black Diamond Fall. My guest, Joseph Olshan. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Joseph Olshan. Just a quick reminder, you can see Joseph Olshan in person at University Bookstore in Seattle. That's coming up on the 18th. That's Wednesday at 6 p.m. You want more information? Visit josepholshan.com. And that last name, Olshan, is spelled O-L-S-H-A-N. So make sure you stay tuned to Conversations Live when we come back. After this quick break, Vicky talks to James Swallow. He's an award-winning British writer and author of the new thriller series, Nomad. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Vicky St. Clair with Conversations Live. And it's that time of year again. It's the 2018 KKNW Listener Survey. And I have a big favor to ask of you because we want to improve programming on an ongoing basis. So could you please just go to 1150kknw.com and take a few moments of your time to fill out the survey. It really helps me as a host to hear what you like about our show and what kind of guests and topics you'd like to hear in the future. Uh, Same goes for KKNW. It helps KKNW provide better station programming. Now, to thank you for your time for filling out the survey, you'll also have a chance to win a round-trip passage on Victoria Clipper to Victoria, BC, plus a $100 gift certificate to Schwartz Brothers Restaurants. So go to 1150kknw.com for your chance to win and tell us what you really think. Parkinson's disease affects as many as 1 million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. This is Martha Norwalk, every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m. Thanks in part to Anti-Icky Poo, the product that gets the stink out, we cover the world of animals. This week, October 14th, it's a harmonic energy shifting Sunday with Jude and Paul Ponton from the Whispering Dragon Center in Seattle in the studio. They'll have their acutonic forks and chimes, Tibetan bowls and bell, Pua Didge rattles ready to go to do remote treatments for you and or your animal friends. On Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations live.net that's conversationslive.net today are you ready for something real raw upfront and honest then tune in each wednesday at 2 p.m right here for love from the hip i'm spiritual hypnotherapist master esthetician and the host sakura sutter 
This show is unlike anything you have ever heard and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world. Their skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. She's a correspondent on National Geographic's Explorer and Netflix's Bill Nye Saves the World. We're talking, of course, about Cara Santa Maria, and we'll discuss the science behind addiction, top travel trends, new explorations, and exciting new discoveries. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and catch up on over 600 podcasts at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Listeners trust the show and advertisers love the audience. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Make us part of your daily routine. Alternative Talk, 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And coming up next, James Swallow. His new book is described by Wilbur Smith as unputdownable. A must read. I'm not sure unputdownable is a <laughs> real word, but it's certainly a nice compliment. Uh, James Swallow is a British author and writer. He's a BAFTA nominee and Scribe Award winner. He's a three times New York Times bestseller, and his body of work includes fiction, television, radio, journalism, new media, and video games. One of his video games actually sold over two million copies. And today we'll hear about the first in his new Rubicon thriller series. It's called Nomad. James Swallow, welcome. Well, thank you for having me on the show, Vicky. Great to be here. Yeah, very pleased to have you here. And I'm just looking at the breadth and depth of your work, James. I mean, it includes novels, the, the Rubicon action thrillers, which is we're going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, the Sundowners steampunk Western novels. You've written stories from the worlds of Star Trek, Warhammer, 40,000, Doctor Who, Star Wars, 24, Stargate, 2000 AD. I mean, the list just goes on endlessly. Um, and I, I heard you say, I can't afford to be a purist. I have a mortgage. So, <laughs> so I like to keep busy. What can I say? Yeah. And I think a good writer can write across multiple platforms, multiple genres. And you you obviously are proving that. So um, uh, great to talk with you today. So curious about when you started writing, how you began your career. H- how did that happen for you? Uh, right at the very beginning. That's um, well, I'm turning the clock back a while now. Um, originally, I started off as an entertainment journalist. So I was writing about film and television. I was interviewing people. Uh, I was writing reviews of movies and books and that kind of thing. Uh, and that was great fun, but it was it was kind of disposable. You know, I never felt like... Uh, anything I wrote really had any kind of permanence to it. And as I was watching other people, you know, getting successful book deals and, you know, writing TV shows, I kept thinking to myself, you know, that's really the career that I would like to have. So from there, I I just worked as hard as I could to to make contacts within the industry. Uh, I came over to the U.S. and I pitched for a few TV shows over there. Uh, And eventually I just, I got myself just through, you know, sheer bloody-mindedness and kind of just putting my nose to the grindstone, got myself into a position where uh, I could get in front of people who had the power to commission and and off I went. Yeah, that's great. And you write a lot of what's called tie-in work. Would you explain what that is for those who don't know? Well, essentially what 
what a tie-in is, is it's a book that's based on an existing franchise. So, for example, some of the work that I've done, I've worked on uh, the Star Trek TV shows, I've done tie-ins for Doctor Who and 24. What you'll get there is a story from that fictional world, but it will be an original story, so not uh, an adaptation of a story you might already have seen on TV, but a brand new story with those characters expanding their world and, and giving you kind of a, a different insight in, into who they are and what they do. Mm. And so when I was reading some of your background uh, and delving into some of the work that you've done, it seems that sometimes you have a pretty free range when you're writing that tie-in work and other times you're given pretty strict criteria. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's not kind of a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. It depends on the, uh, the licensor, the company that actually owns the franchise. Sometimes they'll give you a complete, you know, blank page, and they'll say, "Hey, go crazy, you know, do whatever you like." Other times, it will be very, very strict, and every tiny little detail will have to be certified and signed off on somebody. You know, the, the, there'll be companies that have someone whose specific job is to do nothing else but to make sure that you dot every I and cross every T. But ideally, you know, if you're going to work in a franchise that already exists, you need to be knowledgeable about it to begin with, you know, so that you don't write something that feels tonally incorrect. Right. So you don't want write something for Star Trek if you've never, <laughs> never watched it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, very competitive work, I would think, because I remember years ago when I was taking creative writing nonfiction at, at school, um, I ran into several people who'd who had written for Star Trek and a lot more people who'd wanted to write, uh, but of course didn't, didn't get a hit on that. So um, how do you compose, how do you, well, I think all fields are competitive, but for this particular field, how do you, um, how do you get past that competitiveness? Well, you do need to have a very specific skill set to be uh, a tie-in writer. You know, not, not only do you need to actually be able to write, you also need to have that understanding, as I said, about the, you know, the, the texture and, of the world and the characters. But there's also a degree of kind of workman-like ability that you need to have, because often these books are to, have to be delivered to a very strict deadline, and then you have to go through a lot of hoops, and you have to go through a lot of approvals. So you have to be somebody who isn't precious about your work. You have to be a kind of person who can work in a team and take criticism and, and be willing to let your stuff be changed and and moved around, you know, so you have to have all of those kind of abilities. And often people who are, you know, who love those franchises will say, well, I'd love to write a story in that, but if they don't have experience in all those other things, right. it's very difficult for them to kind of step up and, and, and become one of those writers. So you need to develop that toolkit, that, that experience, I think, before you can really write anything in someone else's universe. Right, right. So whether you're writing a novel or whether you're writing a script or a game or a piece for radio, it's, it's all about storytelling. But how do you, for example, approach uh, writing for a game differently than you would writing for, say, a novel? Well, at the end of the day, you know, I mean, you hit the point pretty much right there. You know, it's all story. At the end of the day, it's all writing. And the way I approach it is I consider it, you know, I'm using different tools in my tool set. So... You know, if you're writing, say, a novel, or you know, that's going to require a different set of writing tools than to if you were writing a short story. You'd have to, you know, conduct your story in a completely different way. When you're writing for a video game, that is again, it's a completely different style of writing. Again, still writing, still a story, still has characters and, and plot and nuance and all those kind of things. But you have to deal with a completely different structure because quite often with a video game. 
what you'll have is a branching narrative with multiple paths through the story where characters can can change what they're doing because because of course in a book you're you're kind of a passive participant in the story you know you see through the eyes of the main character but that character's story is kind of set in stone but if you're playing a game quite often you are the lead character in the story and the choices that character makes are your choices so the story can play out in different ways and of course as the writer of that story you have to make sure that you you facilitate that narrative and you have all these different directions so you find yourself writing you know 20 or 30 different versions of a script based on 20 or 30 different options that that character may have right right interesting and do you find yourself uh, do you plot this out ahead of time or or are you what they call a panster writing by the seat of your pants do you go with the flow Early, well, well, for my novels, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much I'm a plot guy, um, and certainly for the for the Mark Dane books, which are you know action thrillers, thriller stories tend to be strongly plot led. Uh, you know, even though you know you obviously you have to have a, an iconic strong character as well, but I've always felt a great thriller story is you know a hero reacting to a villain's plot. You know, that's what you get in. You look at your typical James Bond movie; that's kind of the sort of thing you get there. So I always try to build a strong plot core, you know, the spine of the novel, if you were, and then uh, hang everything else off of that. Right, right. Well, good segue into the novel. Let's talk about the novel Nomad. This is the first in a new series. It's also a new genre for you, I understand. Yeah, I mean, I've been writing for quite a while, um, but most of the, as I was saying, you know, a lot of tie-in stuff and a lot of science fiction stuff. But my, my other big love in terms of the books that I just enjoy and the genre that I really enjoy was action thrillers. And I'd reached a stage in my career where I was doing pretty well with the work I had, but I just felt like I don't want to plateau. I don't want to just keep doing the same thing. I want to stretch myself as a writer. I want to maybe do something that pushes me a little out of my comfort zone just to keep me interested. And thrillers were the thing that, that I really loved, so I thought, I'm going to just do this. And in many ways, my story is about uh, uh, a spy thriller hero who himself is pushed out of his comfort zone in the story when uh, his team is ambushed and he finds himself, he has to go on the run to, to clear his name, he's very much placed into a situation where he's doing stuff he doesn't want to do. He's pushed out of his comfort zone. So I think I was kind of channeling myself <laughs> a little bit when I came up with the idea for this character. Right, right. So it's about um, MI6 and I'm curious uh, what kind of research you did for this um, and, and how you made this MI6 character so believable. Well, basically, I just had to dive in with, with both feet. You know, there's, there's a wealth of information out there. Um, I tried to make sure that I, I spoke to people who were involved in, in that kind of world. I, I tried to get as authentic and kind of granular a level of detail as I possibly could. I tried to make sure that all of the technology that I the research feels realistic and it feels truthful and authentic. And in terms of, you know, all the locations where the story takes place, they were places that I'd visited myself, where I kind of walked the territory, or if they weren't places I could physically go to, you know, I, I found people who had been there and, and just tried to get that level of, of detail to try and make it feel realistic. Because at the end of the day, it is, it's a fast-paced action-adventure story, so you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit because of all the car chases and things blowing up. You know, that's, that's right. how action thrillers work. But in, in order to, to make the, the readers come along with that story to suspend their disbelief and believe that it's realistic, I try to make sure that every other element is as truthful as I can possibly make it. Right, right. Well, I am talking with James Swallow. Uh, his new book is called Nomad. It's the first in a new 
uh, thriller series. We're going to take a very quick break. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. She's a correspondent on National Geographic's Explorer and Netflix's Bill Nye Saves the World. We're talking, of course, about Cara Santa Maria, and we'll discuss the science behind addiction, top travel trends, new explorations, and exciting new discoveries. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and catch up on over 600 podcasts at conversationslive.net. Do you love wildlife? Then make a real difference by helping Paws care for sick and injured wild animals. Volunteers help feed and clean the animals until they are well enough to return to the wild. Sign up today and help save a wild life. No experience necessary. All training is provided. Visit Paws.org or call 425-787-2500. Hi, I'm Kathy Cooper, and every Wednesday from 1 to 2 p.m., I'll be hosting Lost and Found be discussing all types of losses, but it's not going to be the doom and gloom hour. It'll be an hour of education, support, validation, and yes, we will have a little bit of humor. So won't you join me Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m., Loss and Found, because every loss matters, and through every loss, something can be found. Total Woman Health Studio in Tacoma celebrates 42 years in the fitness business. We specialize in personal training success for women of all fitness levels. We know the number one key to your workout success is consistency, and the solution to maintaining consistency is a Total Woman customized program. Imagine how you want to look and feel. Then come see how we're different. Call Total Woman, 253-565-7546. Mention you heard this on Conversations Live and receive one free month of membership. Call right now, 253-565-7546. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. Advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Giving local voices a chance to shine. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest in this segment is James Swallow. He's uh, a very prolific writer. He writes across multiple genres, uh, radio, television. Uh, he writes scripts. He writes novels. You name it, he does it. And games, of course, too. And uh, we're talking right now about his new novel called Nomad. It's the first in a new thriller series. And... Um, I want to just go a little bit into characterization and, and how you develop that, James, um, because to make a hero believable, he's got to have some flaws and, uh, and yet still be likable. So talk to us a little bit about how you develop the character of Mark Dane. Well, that's interesting because I, you know, when I was first thinking about writing myself an action thriller, I, I went back and I looked at all of the books that that influenced me as, as a reader. And I was looking at the other books that were around in the market at the time, and I was thinking, well, what do these have in common? You know, what kind of characters are we seeing in this sort of fiction? And what I found was, while there were a lot of great stories out there in, in, out there in the world, there were a lot of characters who felt very similar to me, is that they were all these kind of flawless action badasses, you know, <laughs> these guys who would walk into a room and you know, immediately be able to sort 
sort of take on 20 guys at once and, you know, seduce the lady and then like, jump out of a window and steal a car and whatever, you know. And, and I never got a sense reading these stories that these guys were ever going to be in serious trouble because they were such tough guys. And as much fun as that is to read a guy about a character like that, I started to think to myself, you know, I'd rather read about somebody who's a little bit more flawed, a little bit more human, the kind of guy who you would see him in a situation like that, and you think, well, maybe he won't make it through to the end. And I think that makes you empathize with that character a little bit more. It makes you feel like he's a little closer to to you and I. So I modeled him more on, uh, I often talk about, um, Die Hard is, is one of my favorite action movies. I think mm-hmm. you know, that character in that movie ends up bloody but unbowed by the end of the story, you know, but he still wins through. Same with um, Indiana Jones from the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and those films. He's a character who is intelligent and adaptable, but he's not always the strongest guy in the room. And I think that makes you connect with them a lot more than perhaps somebody who is, you know, this stoic kind of side of beef of a guy. Right, right. So I know that uh, you you mention um, some of your favorite reader uh, uh, authors, which were Ian Fleming and um, Robert Ludlum and Tom Clancy. In fact, in the acknowledgments of the book, you you give them a shout out and you say that they heavily influenced the the writing uh, of this book for you. Um, so I'm wondering, what did you take from each of those authors, and and how did they influence you? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, those. Those are the authors who I kind of came up reading, you know. So I think from from Fleming, I think he had a, a very interesting eye, and which, which you, when you read his books, you know, he's got this this attention to detail that sometimes is a little overwhelming. But <laughs> but there's yeah. a kind of coyness to it, and a kind of casual sort of way he kind of just tosses these details in into the story. And I always like that. The, the sort of way it's almost like a raconteur telling you a, telling you this story, and I, and I like the casualness of Fleming's writing. So I thought that's definitely something I've tried to emulate. Uh, in terms of Tom Clancy, definitely for him, authenticity is the thing. Every you know every one of the best Clancy stories has that authentic texture to it, the the reality of it, the sense of you know the the redolence of the the technology and the location. I think all of that comes through very strongly. And also he has a great ability to do these kind of mosaic narratives where you'll have other plot lines that are paralleling the the main characters that will, you know, throw a stark light onto onto parts of the other parts of the story. I think that's a, a useful element to learn. And then uh, for Robert Ludlum, he's the guy. I, he's the man. I think you know. He's the guy I kind of regard as like the the, the top kick. I mean, the, with the the stuff that he did, the, you know, with the the Jason Bourne series, and then you know his Covert One novels, and all of the other uh, great books that he's written and the great stories that he's created. I think Ludlum had an unerring sense of how to tell this kind of fast-moving, propulsive action narrative. And that is, you know, something that I try to seek to emulate in my writing. Right. I actually remember reading Robert Ludlum. Gosh, it was many, many, many years ago. Um, and it kind of spoiled me for a little while for, <laughs> for other authors um, because it was so fast paced. Um, I had to learn to chill out again. <laughs> um so let's talk about Lucy Keys. She is the uh, person who is is uh, hopefully going to help Mark Dane get through his his troubles um, and uh, get things resolved. Was it hard for you, or or how do you go into developing a female character? Well, Lucy was an interesting uh, character to create. She she kind of spun out of a an urban legend story that I'd heard. 
which was about um, the American Special Forces, uh, Army Special Forces Division, Delta Force, which um, in the real world is, is an all-male organization. But there's this urban legend, which may or may not be true, that they had a secret division that was all-female, because there would be operations where perhaps a woman could get into a situation and solve a problem where perhaps a male special forces operator could not. Now, you know, I don't have any secret insight here into the workings of Delta Force, and I don't know whether that's true or not. Perhaps somebody out there could uh, email me and tell me. But I love the idea of that, that there would be an all-female unit to, to, to do these kind of jobs. And immediately I started to think, well, if you were somebody in that unit, what kind of person would you be? What kind of character would that, would that foster and that would create? And I realized that I had the perfect foil here for Mark Danis, for somebody who has this sort of hardcore action hero sort of motif. But writing that character as a woman immediately opens up a whole set of different ways to tell the story. So in a lot of ways, Lucy will sometimes take on what would be the more traditionally male role in the narrative, and Mark will take on the more traditionally female role. And I like to mess around with those, those tropes and those archetypes, flip them around a little bit, and I think it adds an interesting tension to, to some of the story. Right, right. And talking of tension, um, how, I mean, I, I know you're a plot guy. You said you're a plot guy. But what drives the pace for you? Because if it's, if it's nonstop, uh, which, you know, often critic or reviewers will say it's nonstop, but there has to be a little breathing space there. Like, otherwise, it gets too much. How do, you, how do you pace that? I've always thought of myself as a guy who can kind of see the music, right, when it comes to telling a narrative, you know. I, I, I think one of my best abilities as a writer is that when I finish plotting a story, I can look at it and say, well, you know, there's a, there's a lull here and there's a peak there and I need this, you know, I need a car chase or a dance number in the middle of this, right, to, just to pep the story up and make it move at the right kind of pace. And that's a skill that I've just developed over a lot of years. I think some of it comes from my early experiences in, in writing for American television, which has this, you know, the five-act structure and you very much learn from very early on how to build in a structure that has those peaks and troughs that will keep people interested and keep people glued to their TV sets. And I try to do the same thing with my book. So every time I end a chapter, I want to make sure that I end it on a, on a question or a kind of up note so that people will want to come back the next day and read the next chapter of the book. And people often say to me, oh, I, I read your book in an entire evening. I read it from cover to cover. I stayed up until... 4 a.m. to read your book because I wanted to keep on reading. And I'm always really, really happy to hear that because that's exactly the kind of energy I want uh, coming out of the novel. Yeah, I saw somebody on Twitter who said he'd read one of your books. It was, it was I think it was Storm or maybe, I don't know. But uh, he said he'd read it many, many, many times. <laughs> so I thought, okay, you have quite a, a following out there. That's always, that's so rewarding to hear that when, when people say to me that, you know, they They've, they've gone back to the book time and again, and they've, they've got more out of it. It's, it's, as a writer, there's, there's nothing better than, than hearing somebody say they got that much enjoyment out of your work. Mm, yeah. So let's talk about dialogue, because this is another thing that can make or break a book. Um, if it's not realistic, it, it just drags that book down. <laughs> um, how do you make that realistic? How do you keep it realistic? Again, the, just research, really. I try to, I try to have a, a, an ear for that sort of thing. A lot of it is just listening to people and, and trying to find people who are, you know, exemplars of that sort of character. I mean, Mark Dane uh, himself, he's, uh, he's from South London. I'm from North London, so, you know, not a million miles away from him. So there's a lot of 
kind of, I think, you know, my personality kind of shows through from him. But I know a lot of people who are from that part of the world, so I can listen to the cadence and rhythm of their voices and, and lock onto that. The same with um, Lucy. Lucy is a New Yorker. I have a lot of friends who are from New York. And so, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of hearing the echo of their voices whenever I'm writing dialogue for her. Right, right. Well, the book is called Nomad. Um, is there a scene that is more difficult for you to write, uh, a certain type of scene more difficult for you to write than other types of scenes? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, there's no particular type. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it'll just be a moment where, you know, I'll have to work at it and, and come at it and construct it in different ways. I think sometimes kind of like the, the ending is always the hardest part for me. I think to, to find the right note to end a story on, sometimes I find myself, I kind of end the story three or four times when I'm rewriting it, you know, because every character has to kind of have a sign-off at the end of the story. And coming up with something that ties all those little plot elements together but also kind of leaves a few doors open for the, for the next story, that's kind of difficult to juggle, juggle all those balls all at once. But it's a fun challenge. Yeah, I heard a quote the other day. Um, it, it, a writer said there is no conclusion at the end of a book. It's just a good place to stop, dot, 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 for now. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. I, I mean, I think, you know, what you have to remember is, is when you're landing that story right at the very end, that's the last thing your reader's going to see before they close the cover and they walk away. And what you want them to do is you want them to have that emotional moment where they feel like they've had catharsis, where they feel like they've had closure, but not too much because you want to come, want them to come back for, for the next novel that you write. Yeah, I think there's nothing worse than reading a novel and it's been good all the way through and then they just close it out quickly with a chapter of exposition, just telling you, you know, what went on and, and it's kind of, you've left flat there, so. That's sure, yeah, sure. And everybody lives happily ever after. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, what's, I know you're working on a series. Uh, do you have this all plotted out? Is it uh, evolving as it goes along? It's a kind of some from column A and some from column B, really. Um, right now I'm... I'm just finishing up uh, book four in the series, and I have uh, a story arc planned out for the first six novels, and then a few other ideas past that point. Obviously, it's all down to the readers. If people want me to keep telling stories with these characters, I will keep telling stories with them. Right, right. And so, because you work in so many genres, um, you kind of uh, you know, spread your eggs around, if you will, uh, rather than keeping all your eggs in one basket. But has the way that the publishing industry changed affected you and your career and the decisions you make? Yeah, I think, I think to a degree. I mean, seeing a lot of the changes that have happened, you know, the, the rise in digital reading technology over the last few years has made new markets open up for us. I mean, I, one of the reasons I like writing different kinds of work, you know, working in games or short fiction or what have you, I think that keeps me sharp. I think if I was writing the same kind of thing, project after project after project, I might get a little bit bored with it. But if I go away and I try something different, I think when I come back, I find I, whatever experience I had, say, in writing video games, brings uh, a new light for me to shine on my writing for books. And it, you know, it, it brings me a new set of tools that I can, I can apply to it. And I think as the, you know, as the industries move forward, as, as these changes have, have sort of resonated out, um, it's only good for readers and writers because more people reading is more people reading, and, and that means more eyes on books, more books in people's hands. That's, that's good for all of us. Right, right. And uh, my last question for you is um, what keeps you going when it gets tough? Because, you know, you, it, it's not always easy to write, or do you find it easy to write all the time? 
again, some yeah, some days yes, some days no. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, I guess that this the, I, I'm I'm lucky that I have a really great support structure. Is I've got uh, a lot of good family and friends who have all been behind me through the years and through the through the lean times as well as the good times. So. Um, there are plenty of people who, if I'm having a bad day, I can kind of step away from the keyboard and, and have a gripe about it, and they'll they'll pat me on the shoulder and go, "There, there, Jim, get back to work," you know. <laughs> and that, and that's nice to have that support structure. I also have a lot of friends who are fellow writers, so we can kind of talk shop. That's really really useful to have that kind of support structure as well. But I think in terms of of what propels me forward, it's a mix of the best and worst of my emotions. I think. Uh, I get angry about stuff when I see something that I don't like. That kind of compels me, propels me to write something, even if it's down to you know I read a book that's not particularly well written. I, I get angry about. It. I go, okay, I'm going to write something because this piece of work isn't very good, and I think I can do better. But I'm also driven by the positive feeling of it, which is the the, the great energy you get from people. When someone says, "I read your book, I really enjoyed it," when someone feels they've been, you know, when they've been moved by something that you've done, or when they've just been excited or thrilled by it, that is just the best thing ever. Yeah, yeah. Well, final quick thought you'd like to leave our listeners with uh, today? Well, I would just like to say uh, thank you very much for reading my books, and, and please keep on doing so. All right, James Swallow, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. interesting talking with you. Uh, my pleasure. You can find out more about James and his work at jameswallow.blogspot.co.uk and he's also on Twitter at jmswallow. And the book again called Nomad. Well, thanks for being with us today. We really appreciate you spending this hour with us. If you have questions or feedback on the show, you can reach me at all the usual places. We're on Facebook at Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Vicky St. Clair. And, of course, you can uh, find more than 600 podcasts. Each show is uh, archived and put onto um, our website at conversationslive.net. And uh, you can reach me at 800-495-7617 if you have comments or feedback on today's show. 1-800-495-7617. We'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Hi, this is Vicky St. Clair with Conversations Live, and it's that time of year again. It's the 2018 KKNW Listener Survey, and I have a big favor to ask of you because we want to improve programming on an ongoing basis. So could you please just go to 1150kknw.com and take a few moments of your time to fill out the survey? It really helps me as a host to hear what you like about our show and what kind of guests and topics you'd like to hear in the future. Uh, Same goes for KKNW. It helps KKNW provide better station programming. Now, to thank you for your time for filling out the survey, you'll also have a chance to win a round-trip passage on Victoria Clipper to Victoria, BC, plus a $100 gift certificate to Schwartz Brothers Restaurants. So go to 1150kknw.com for your chance to win and tell us what you really think. 
Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.